Welcome back to Rethinking Politics, episode 34. <laughs> I, I keep looking at Brad, who's over there chuckling because this is take two of our entry, entry of our attempt to begin this episode. And so far, it's going really well. It's going very poorly. You, you take for granted these kind of things when you're listening to someone else who's been doing this for years and you don't know how many takes they've done. You know, maybe the first. 12 times were just really bad and they just needed needed more tries and we're working our way to that number you know what for us i think we're gonna stick with stick with two dan we'll just go from there so today we wanted to talk to you guys about a number of things but we wanted to start our conversation with the atlanta spa shootings in florida so this happened last tuesday there were as far as we know now eight people who were killed there were three different spas where the suspect went to these spas and then was, you know, it was basically a shooting rampage where he was going through and killing people at multiple locations before, thanks to some calls to the police from people who knew him, the authorities were able to go and apprehend him that night before anything else was able to happen, which was a relatively good ending to a truly awful, awful day. Now, at first glance, you know, this is something that happens on a fairly regular basis. Violence in the United States is nothing new. Some form of mass shootings in the United States is nothing new. What's interesting with this case and what got us thinking was how quickly the narrative changed in this story about the Atlanta shootings and how quickly it became about other things. And those other things are really what it's what it's about now. Really, every article you look at about these Atlanta shootings are not actually about the shootings. It took me a while clicking through articles to find out details about what happened because no one wanted to talk about what actually happened. What they wanted to talk about was what they thought that meant in a much broader sense. You know, people were moralizing, people were generalizing. And it struck me as so weird, Dan, so weird that that was the focus, which raised the question, why? Why has it become the focus of these Atlanta shootings? Why are these Atlanta shootings about anti-Asian American hate? That's what everyone is talking about now, is anti-Asian American hate about violence towards Asian Americans and that's the discussion that is taking place nationwide right now. You've got uh, Biden and Kamala Harris. They came down, president and vice president. They're talking about it. They're talking about what we need to do. Biden is talking about how America is complicit in anti-Asian American hate because of our silence. And Kamala Harris is talking about how this is an ongoing problem. And I was so confused <laughs> as everyone was talking about this because... Dan, you were you were there with me as we listened to to Joe Biden and, and Kamala Harris, you know, during their eight hours of primetime television <laughs> where they talked about everything that mattered to them. And I have no recollection of them ever talking about it before. When Joe Biden was talking about the complicit silence, all I could think about was their silence. How come they haven't been talking about it? But now it's the thing, Dan. Yeah, the good news is as long as you're the first one to break the silence, you can then talk about everyone else being silent, right? Being silent. So, so from here on out, moral high ground. <laughs> it's been claimed. <laughs> and now the Republicans are going to have to demonstrate that there isn't any problem anywhere or any bias against Asians. Otherwise, they're guilty of this this sin that they're being 
painted with. And so what we're looking at now is a new battleground for the cultural war between the liberals and the conservatives. The liberals have laid down that this is what the battleground is, is it's anti-Asian American hate. It's racism towards Asian Americans is the new problem. And so, of course, conservatives are going to take the opposite side and say that there isn't a problem. There is no anti-Asian American hate. It's not a real issue. It's something else. You know, these shootings aren't about race. They're about something else. And thus, the battle lines have been drawn. And now, for the next, you know, couple of weeks, this is going to be major news. But even after it shifts from not being major news, it's definitely going to stick around in terms of a battleground that people are going to try and use to push the culture. So the question that me and Dan have is why? We get that every party is looking for something that allows them to move their momentum forward. They have these ideas, they have the, the way they perceive the world, and they're applying it to the world. And there are a lot of problems that the parties point to. Why this one? And why assign it here? Like, if I were the investigator of this crime, this guy's killed a bunch of people. You want to know why. You want to know the, the motivation. You want to know the degree to which it is it has been planned beforehand so you can you know what to accuse them with in terms of, of murder. And you want to know if this is something where the guy just snapped. Something happened. It's in a moment of rage, maybe a moment of where there's some kind of drug or something in his system. And to figure out all those pieces and the motivation in things to, to then make the case against him in court so that he is tried and accused and punished according to whatever it was that he did. And so to do that, you have to figure out what he did exactly and why he did it. In that process, I would think that I would be looking for evidence, but what would not stick out to me necessarily is the mere circumstances. The entirety of the interpretation that this is racial is the fact that there are a disproportionate amount of Asians who were killed. Yeah, of the eight who were killed, six were Asian and two were white, I believe. Is that enough? Is what needs to happen for that not to be your assumption that he kills exactly a proportionate amount of people to the population for you to look at it and be like, this isn't a hate crime. And we know that because he killed exactly the percent of Asians that corresponds to the population. And exactly the percent of black people that corresponds to the population. And exactly the percent of white people. And that he happened to walk into this wonderfully diverse business that had gone by the numbers. That it happened to work out that way. And the fact that this happens to be a higher proportion of a minority, is that enough to justify that assumption without consulting anything about him? It's an interesting point, Dan, and I would take that point one step further because, because when I look at what happened, I see the main problem as the fact that this individual walked into three different establishments, three different places, and killed eight people. And that seems like in itself, that should be bad enough. You know what I mean? And when it comes to this issue, no one is defending the suspect, you know what I mean? Assuming assuming the guy they caught the guy is the guy who did it, which it sure looks like it yeah, he confessed to it. He confessed you know, to he it. He admitted right. to it. So so statistically speaking, the odds of him not being the guy who did it are extremely low. So assuming this is the guy that did it, the real problem here is the murders. And people are arguing about why he did it. And every year, 
thousands and thousands of murders are committed across the United States. You know, it's in the tens of thousands. I think the past couple of years, it's been around 16, 17,000 murders every year. And then last year, that number was higher, closer to 20,000. And there are a diverse number of reasons for why those people committed those murders. And they're varied and they're all over the place. There's very few cases where there was any kind of good reason. I mean, almost every single one of those was senseless violence. You may, you may go and do some research and find out that one or two of those murders, there was actually a vigilante who was, who was seriously abused by the person who, who was killed, the victim. You know, right. someone abuses someone and that person kills them. That's not exactly senseless violence in my book. That's right. about as close as it comes to a legitimate reason to kill someone. But in almost every other case, it's just senseless. It's just senseless. There's there's no just reason. You know what I mean? If, if you find out that it turns out that this guy didn't kill these people because they were Asian, does that make it okay? You know what I mean? Is it, is it, is it okay now? If not, then then why are we having this discussion? The problem is not whether or not he hated these people or whether or not he hated them for the right reasons. Now, we're not saying that it's not important that it's being classified as a hate crime or whether or not it's classified as a, as a hate crime. I do think it's incredibly important because what we're doing here and what what they're doing here as the issue becomes about race is they're changing the conversation. They're changing the focus and the emphasis, and that does have a very important impact. A great example of that is George Floyd. George Floyd was killed by the police in a very unjust way. And right after that happened, what happened was a movement that was Black Lives Matter. This incident happened with the police and this individual. And the narrative that was chosen was that this was because he was black and what we need to stop is violence against black people. And people are like, well, of course, that was the narrative that was chosen. But no, that wasn't the only narrative that could have been chosen. You could have chosen a narrative that was, we need to stop police brutality. That is a very different, but in many ways, equally justifiable narrative. If you want to look at these Atlanta shootings, you could look at them and say, a disproportionate number of these victims were women. And we need to look at sexism as a root cause for these crimes. You know what I mean? There, there's other things that you can look at, other narratives that you can pick. Yeah, you can talk about their poverty. Yeah, and these narratives have power. These narratives are important because it, it frames the way that we look at issues. And right now, everything is being framed in terms of race. What matters here is race above all else. It just seems overly simplistic to have it just be about race. Because don't get me wrong, as they're talking about it and there are articles and stories coming out talking about anti-Asian American hate and how that has risen in the past year because of COVID, because of things that have been said by political figures. You know, Trump has been one who's been called out for blaming China, which has caused some people to blame Asian Americans which is not a new thing. That's something that's happened historically. You can go back and look at 9-11 20 years ago, where there was an increase in crimes against Arab Americans because of the incident that happened, even though those people had nothing to do with it. 
it makes sense that that same thing would happen now. And of course, of course, that's an awful thing. Of no one is no one is defending that. <laughs> right, I, right. I sure hope no one is defending that. No one is saying this is a good thing. It's just one narrative, and which narrative we choose has a lot of impact. It really does. And which one we choose is going to, as you said, eventually determine which solutions we come up with. And whether or not those solutions work depends on whether or not we pick the right narrative. It seems to me that if you begin with the narrative, you've begun in the wrong place. If you look at the a few simple facts and you make all these assumptions, because it's not just that, that there's a disproportionate amount of Asians who are being harmed in some way, right? That's a statistic that is either true or is not true. It's the assumption that comes with it that they are being harmed because of racism. That is an assumption that must be proved. Before you go after racism as the cause, you ought to consider if there are other reasons why that those statistics say what they say. This is ties back to Ibram Kendi and his extremely reductionist logic, where he says if there is something disproportionate, that is racism. That by definition, you can identify racism by something that's disproportionate. Mm -hmm. By disproportion, I mean, I mean, it doesn't reflect the percentage of the population as a whole in this sphere, whatever it may be, which is ironic because by that logic, in any murder case that is disproportionate against minorities, you have racism. That's a different type of racism than what most people think of when they think of the word. It's a fundamental shift that tries to grab all the people who are worried about racism as we traditionally mean it and pull them into a story that isn't true by that definition, but which is true by his definition, which is useless because it's reductionist and, and doesn't account for any other factor in life. It doesn't account for even randomness. Mm -hmm. uh, it just assumes racism where there's disproportion. That whole thing gets, gets spun into this narrative about race where race is the dominant thing, and it's the dominant thing because of racism and Racism must be fought at all costs, and to do that, it's all about equality in numbers. And you make an excellent point, Dan, because if you look at this isolated case, you look at these shootings, and you say from a more general policy basis, you know, what can we do to stop this from happening again? And you assume that it was motivated by racism, then your answer is, then we have to stop racism. And so then you go and you start you start pushing for anti-racism programs. You know, right. whatever whatever those look like. Maybe you increase the hate crime penalties, maybe you look at having some more communication between communities, try and get people in there to to help educate people about racism, to stop these racist ideas in order to decrease the hate against Asian Americans since that's the root cause of the problem, which is all fine and good. But let's say that upon further investigation, you find out that this murder actually had absolutely nothing to do with race at all. Then do any of those proposals help prevent future crimes like this? Absolutely not. No. Absolutely not. You've misdiagnosed the problem. Which is why, and this is why we're talking about this, is that the fact that we've already decided what the problem is before even having all the facts about what happened here demonstrates that this is not about the shootings. The shootings are an excuse for us to talk about something that we'd like to talk about. 
You know, we we want to talk about an issue, and these shootings give us an excuse to talk about it. We're not talking about you know hate crime and about and about discrimination towards Asian Americans because of these shootings. Really, it's because we already wanted to talk about it. Right. Right. And it's it's just an excuse. It's not about making sure this shooting and something like it never happens again because we haven't even understood why these shootings happened yet. One of the saddest things about news at this point in time is that you actually will know less about what happened and the way the world works in many cases by reading the news. That wasn't true that long ago. You know, you could go you could go to the news for opinions that were counter to your own, which is helpful, and to hear the facts described and hear people try and reason through things. And they skip most of that. As Brad was saying, he had to dig to find the facts of the story, right? The actual, what actually happened. And instead of building the case, instead what we do is we immediately filter it through our biases. Obviously, a story where a lot of minority people are killed disproportionately lends itself perfectly to the current race of a significant portion of the United States. And their solutions are not going to help this this occasion at all. It's a unless it happens to be the right diagnosis, which we have no evidence that it is. And you've heard us talk about the way that parties spin the news. When you realize the amount of power at stake in the US federal government, the, the reach that they have, the amount of money that they direct, the even when it's not money that there's that is specifically within their budget and capacity to spend, they are the ones who determine so many of the incentives that they do decide the winners and losers in all kinds of cases. We were talking Texas Energy. And how the the incentives are such that you're going to get a much better payoff by investing in some things than others. And how that shapes everything. And that shapes so much of the society and even what appears to be a market at this point. And when there's so much power at stake, why not? Why not spin these stories? Why not? Mm -hmm. As Brad and I were discussing this beforehand, I was getting uh, very jaded, (laughs) as, (laughs) as is easy to do. And I was like, they've, they've got to, it's got to, in their mind, be about power. They must be able to see that this is dishonest. And Brad, I think, rightfully corrected me and pointed out, no, it really doesn't. If you accept Kendi's arguments, you haven't looked at them closely, as most people don't have time to do. You haven't really considered this, what other things might cause disproportionate things. And there are a million factors. Where you live is, is a big impact on how wealthy you are. And it has nothing to do with race, right? People always ascribe it to race, where you, uh, your educational opportunities, obviously, but in a, in, a, in a dozen other factors that play into it that are unrelated to race, that can do a lot to predict your wealth and success in the future. And yet, there will be people who reduce the struggles of minorities exclusively to their race and to discrimination. And with that kind of worldview, where you can reduce everything so simply to that based on a few easily observable external factors. Once you're there, of course this is about race. Of course that's what this is about. You already know that this guy is biased. You know he's biased because he's white. And you know that because there is a disproportionate group, racism is involved, right? All the questions Mm -hmm. are answered for you. You look at a few simple facts, your interpretation is handed to you. I think that most people who are proposing this are proposing it in good faith, which is a good sign in some ways, right? It's better than the alternative that people spinning the story this way are evil and are trying deliberately to deceive you. (laughs) But it's also a bad sign that should not be that easy to believe this narrative. 
You should not be able to, with no evidence from the person himself, assume that he's motivated by racism. Well, and, and I was thinking about it, Dan, and I was thinking about why has everyone jumped on this bandwagon so quickly and so strongly? And I realized what it is. You have a really nice alignment of incentives here, where for the past year, with Black Lives Matter, being a uh, racial justice warrior is really, really popular. Standing up for minorities is really, really popular. And yeah. so anywhere you point out something is about race and about discrimination that's been going on, you tend to look really good. Well, let me just add to that, your, the picture you were just painting there, because we're not saying that it's popular now to not be racist. Of course, that's popular. That's been popular for, for a, a long, long time. time. Like, but, but no one is going to give you a pat on the back because that was expected behavior, right? No, what's popular now is to be anti-racist. Right, right. No one comes up to you and goes, you know, I just want you to know you're amazing. I don't think you've stolen anything in a couple months. <laughs> Good for you, right? That's, that's like a, there's, a, there's a minimum accepted level of behavior in society. And you'll know when you're meeting it, or at least pretending to meet it sufficiently well, because you're not in jail. Right? <laughs> you're, you're, varies in different spheres. If you can get a loan, you're meeting it in the financial area, right? Yeah, if you yeah. can do these, there's certain like measurements if that we have. If you cannot get kicked out of the store, then you're doing it. If you cannot get kicked out of the store, you're doing it while you're shopping. And you don't congratulate people for that. But all of a sudden, I have Facebook flooded with people saying, I'm not a racist. <laughs> Basically, that's that's what no, they're and, saying. And saying. And as you said, it's a change racism of perception. is wrong, like they've discovered yes. something new. Yes, as if they've discovered something new that they, on lesser moments in my life, have been tempted to write on those, like, I'm glad you've had a change of heart. You know, or <laughs> so, so, you know, something like that, because cause obviously this isn't new. These people were not racist before this moment. They weren't tolerating racism before this moment in their own daily lives. Generally speaking, maybe there were a few, in which case, good for them. If this has been an eye-opening experience where you're like, well, racism is bad. Good. Welcome to society. And obviously, Dan, obviously they haven't just discovered that racism is bad. This is not people who are figuring things out for the first time. Obviously, there has to be something more going on. And so the question is, is what is going on? What has created a situation where people are making the claim, you know, as if for the first time that these things are bad, that racism is bad, that violence towards Asian Americans is bad. Stances like these are coming out and they're coming, becoming more and more popular for a reason. Right. I think it's got to be tied in part to the new definitions we discussed at length in our discrimination episode, because they're, they are discovering something new. And what is it? And it's the thread that is racism, this new idea of racism, that can connect all of these dots. Yeah, really, people are buying into the idea that racism is the thread that connects everything. They're buying into Kendi's idea that if you want to see the world effectively, the lens through which you should do it is racism. That if you want to understand what happened at a shooting, what happened at, at any any number of other incidents, the best way to do that and the most effective way to do that is to look at racism, which is why you now take a stand against racism because racism 
is the biggest problem, is the thing that needs to be addressed, that needs to be fixed in order for us to progress as a society, which basically creates a a generation of, of racial justice warriors, people who are out there to fix this number one problem that in many ways is the root problem for all other problems. And it creates racism as the ultimate new priority, that we need to look at racism first above all other things. But as soon as that's your only priority, you stop looking at everything else. We stop looking at why these murders are actually taking place. We stop looking at why is there so many violent crimes being committed? What could we have done to prevent these crimes? What can we do to protect people? Which you'd think is something that the government would be interested in instead of Biden is talking about creating community councils to talk to people about race. If people are going and shooting other people, is that solution going to help with that? Talking about race with these community outreach programs. You know what I mean, um, though? Uh, yeah, is, yeah. How, is, yeah, yeah, how yeah. is this going to fix the problem? How is this going to fix the problem? It's not going to fix the problem. And that's the real answer, Dan. If you're looking at violence against Asian Americans, there are many different ways that you can look at it. And the best way to look at it is with a holistic approach to get as much information as possible so that you can accurately approach it. But at the very least, please look at the violent part of that, and not just the Asian American part. The fact that we need hate crimes suggests to me that, the, that we are focusing on the wrong part. That you need, in addition to the fact that someone was murdered, to determine whether they hated that person based on something arbitrary, some kind of prejudice, that that should be an important consideration on in the trial when it comes to the punishment of that person yeah exactly exactly that this is an aggravating factor that to murder someone is bad but to murder someone for prejudice is so much worse that it should be considered as a critical factor in assessing you know the degree to which they're punished it seems to me the problem is that someone was murdered yeah that that should be your primary your and primary determining could, factor right if we could stop one thing in this in this it's that people are getting murdered I would much more prefer that people you know, that people are not getting murdered and that the real racists in society don't carry out their prejudice through murder than that you stop the, uh, the racism, but the dispassionate murderers all continue to, or the, or the passionate ones who are doing it for some other reason than are allowed these few stats yeah. that, we, that we track. Like, clearly, the problem here is murder, and in a scale of good and evil, Beyond murder, the fact that this person may have been a jerk to, to a certain group of people and hold ignorant views about them seems like a, a footnote. But if you believe that race is the motivating factor in so many cases and that secretly, whether they know it or not, this drives so much of your behavior, which is, which is growing in popularity, right? Then you'd say, well, well, Dan, you're not understanding because secretly it is all about race. Right? And I don't know how to I don't know how to break past that wall with the people we're trying to talk yeah, to. Yeah, there's there's a serious disconnect because this this cultural phenomenon has gone on for so long that arguing against it is controversial. You know, what we're talking about here is extremely controversial because we're we're sitting here and we're taking a stand and saying that the main problem is not race. And for so long the narrative has been framed in terms of racism 
that saying that is crazy. I was sitting here listening to you talk, Dan, and I had this I had this thought, and my thought was, and I've had this thought before, racism is being held up as this boogeyman, right? Racism is this boogeyman. But the real thing, and, and I think something you were trying to drive at there for a second, Dan, is that racism really doesn't matter except in terms of when people act on it. People talk about racism being the real problem. But if you have a bunch of people who are extremely racist, who truly hate some particular group for whatever reason, you know, they have these extreme prejudices and they keep it to themselves. And because of their racism, they choose not to associate with those people. And they just live by themselves in this deep racism. Let's say theoretically there was an island full of extreme racists who lived by themselves and didn't associate with the rest of the world, would that be a real problem in terms of affecting the community as a whole, in terms of affecting right. the community that they're racist towards? If it were me, if I were the one who was in the group that was being prejudiced against, you know, if there was a group of people who absolutely hated gingers, who thought redheaded <laughs> people are soulless <laughs> devils who should all die, and I knew that they hated me, I don't, I'm not sure I would care if they never acted against me. You know what I mean? Right. In fact, in fact, there are people, I've heard people say things about gingers and redheads, some joking, but some actually sincere that some people really don't like redheads, but they've never done anything against me. And so I just don't care, right? It's not right. the racism that's the problem in itself. The problem is the actions against those people. You know what I mean? As soon as you get into harassment, as soon as you get into bullying, as soon as you get into serious crimes, things start to change. Absolutely they do. If you go back and you look and you talk to MLK and you look at the civil rights movement, their rallying cry was not, we want these people to stop hating us. No, they were saying, we want these people to stop physically hurting us, to stop physically oppressing us. We want to be able to have rights that others have. That's what they cared about. That was their priority. They didn't want to go and, and force those people to love them. They just wanted those people to leave them alone. That was helpful. I think that, that put a few pieces together for me. If I'm looking at these eight people who've been killed, six of them are Asian, people perceive this and they go, it would be even worse if what happened was he was motivated by the fact that they are Asian and he hates Asians, and so he specifically took it out on Asians delivery. Dan, you're, you're speaking hypothetically here, but that is what people are saying. They're saying this is a real tragedy because it was an act of violence against Asian Americans. That's why it was a real tragedy. That's how it's being framed. That is how it's being framed. and That's, that's not so hypothetical. You're right. It's not hypothetical. And here's why I hate that. Here's the thing. The tragedy here for me is that eight human beings, people of infinite potential and with their own unique personalities, and I have all these uh, philosophical and even religious ideas that go into what, what makes a person and why they're special. And if somebody did that because all they could see is not a human being, but an Asian, that would be tragic. They're missing out on the wonderful potential and the personality, the everything that makes a person a person. And to look at the story and interpret it that way also misses that same point. Just to make that same mistake. 
it's to skip over the fact that eight people who you could come to know and who you could appreciate for their own unique talents and quirks and beauty and their, their, the struggle of their life, and to see them merely as Asians and whites. That is to miss the important aspect. And that's, what, that's why when we say we're focusing, we think we should focus on the murder, not on the race, because what's tragic here is what ended. And what ended was a human life with all of its potential. And yet, here we are talking about whites and Asians, as if that's what's important, as if they weren't all human beings. And that, that's why this view, I've tried to find the words for it at other times too, why, why this perspective of seeing everything through the lens of race seems to me to be fundamentally racist. It seems to me to be putting before humanity your race as a, as a fundamental aspect of your humanity. As the most important thing about you. Yes, and it's not in spite of your race and your color and these, these external arbitrary factors. You are a human being, and that means something, and that means more than all those other things. Those other things are arbitrary because we compare them to the fact that you're a human being. That's what makes them arbitrary. We look at this richness and this potential and this divinity even, and, and we say, this is important. Your color, your skin, not yeah. important. But we're reversing that again. We're reversing that again by looking at this as six Asians and two white people were killed by a racist. When what's important is that eight people were killed. And if what motivated this crime is that he, that he couldn't see that, he couldn't see that this was eight people, what he saw was six Asians and two people, then that's a problem. And we want to help people with that as much as possible. But there's no evidence that that's what he saw. But it is what everybody looking at it is no, seeing. No, and, and, and I think you make a good point, Dan, that even if that is what he saw, even if these crimes were 100% racially motivated, that still wouldn't be the most important thing in terms of what happened. That still wouldn't be the defining factor of no. these murders. No, at that point, it would become a critical factor in trying to figure out how to prevent it, this kind of thing in the future, yeah. right? He killed eight people. And that's why, in a, in a nutshell, that is why racism is bad, right? Because it motivates people to do terrible things to human beings. It's, it gives them excuses. It's, it makes them reduce a person to something less than a person. They make them the other. They make them some kind of monster. And that's a tragedy because they are a person. And they have all of this potential and all of this life. And to end that or to harm that is unjust because, because of how wonderful it is, because of of what it is. We risk making the same mistake. No, I, I really like that, Dan, and help you guys see what we're talking about as we, I want to clarify a little bit here, that what we're saying is not be colorblind, is not ignore the differences between people, and it's also not focus only on those differences. It's to take a more holistic approach of how we look at everything. I mean, it's something we've talked about before and something we'll talk about again, is so many people in terms of politics, and we're not just talking social justice warriors, we're not just talking the left here, so many people, both sides of the aisle in general, want to reduce things. They always want to reduce things in order to win their political battles. And the, the simpler they can reduce things, the easier it is for them to win. That's kind of just the nature of politics. 
which is why we think they need to be rethought because you need to look at the world more holistically. You can't be cutting out the vast majority of the reasons for any particular thing to happen and to still be able to understand that thing reasonably well. You can't do it. Right. Whatever it right. is, not just in not just in terms of crime, but in terms of everything. You right. have to look at the world. You have to take these things in in order to have any reasonable chance of having a good solution to whatever the problem is. <laughs> yes. And, yes. And no one seems willing to do that. Yeah, we've mentioned things like a multivariable analysis. If, if you want to put this in scientific terms, you need to be able to account for all of the things that can affect this. If you really want to understand what's wrong and why things are the way they are, and to do that, you've got to look broader than to one thing. Now, that one thing may play a role, but you need to know exactly how much of a role so you're not wasting your time and resources on things that actually don't have the impact you think they do. And Kendi is the worst at this I have ever seen in, any, in anything in the world. He has reduced every difference to discrimination. Yeah, it's one variable. It's racism. It's one about. variable. He said there is, there is one variable that controls between different races, and it is racism. And if you've accepted that, you know, so many of these other things are not going to make sense. You're not going to be able to see the other variables. You've already reduced it to one. It's all just different kinds of racism. I really want to help people get out of that narrative. I really think it will help them think more clearly about politics and about the world in general. And that's not to say you discard the threat and the problem of racism. You don't. But you need to put it in its rightful place. And to do that, you have to escape the logic of Kendi. It is a circular trap where everything is reduced that does not hold up to any kind of decent statistical evidence. The other trap in this sphere of racism is the one that you have from White Fragility by D'Angelo. And it suggests that you cannot understand anything if you don't have direct experience with it. And thus, you cannot understand racism unless you are a minority. And you can't make policy decisions in your job as a white person. My job as a white person is to be quiet and listen. And she argues that if you do anything else, you're simply manifesting your your white fragility is the term mm -hmm. that she has for it. And she attempts to put you in a situation where if you object, it's because you're white and because you're racist and because her ideas hurt your power. And so you are left to agree or be ridiculed. Yeah, it's a it's one of those classic philosophical traps. Right. You know, where where you say, hey, the, the first sign of something is denial. So if you deny it by definition, <laughs> you know, you're admitting it. You know, it's where right. well, what what can I say to argue with you? No, and and it's another one of those things where you can understand where she's coming from, and you can understand that there is some truth to what she's saying. That there is incredible power in being quiet and just listening, absolutely. But that's just right. not a racial tool. That's just a fact of life. That when you listen to someone and truly understand where they're coming from. It can be a game changer, but to take that one principle and apply it to everything and say, now you no longer matter in terms of being able to have any say in these discussions because you didn't directly experience it is amazing because now you've reached a level where once again, you're disenfranchising people. You know, you've come full circle where uh -huh. anti-racism can become a new form of racism. Right. And 
obviously that shouldn't be what we want. It's crazy how out of control things have gone and it's reached such crazy levels that that we struggle just to communicate with each other. That people who have accepted white fragility, people who have accepted Ibram Kendi's way of thinking, and people who have not struggle so much to communicate with each other. And it's something we need to work on because we need to bridge this gap and realize that there are some major ways of thinking that we disagree on. And we need to understand that and understand where the other person is coming from so that we can start to communicate again and get past where we are now, where you have major news articles about this issue. And then you have the rebuttal articles who are saying, no, this wasn't about race. And they're arguing back and forth about really things that aren't as important as they seem at first glance and not talking about things that really do matter and talking over each other. White fragility is, I've, the more I think about it, the more I can see that, as you said, things like listening, she's taken good psychological principles and she's taken a few political principles. And then she's taking her, her perspective, which she seems to have taken from Kendi, and she's used that to tie all these things together in terms of racism. Yeah, it's that, it's that reductionism again. Again, right, right. She's taken all of these and made them about race in ways that the political ideas do not stand with, in ways that the psychological literature does not support, but in which if you have that already, if you're already in this, this perspective, it all looks linear, which is why she can get great reviews from one group and absolute disgust from another group. And it's all about whether or not you've accepted those fundamental redu reduced ideas. And if you do, then this, this looks linear. It is not linear. I would love to rewrite her book, but just un pull out the race thread, the Kendi thread from her work and let it stand on its own. And you'd see that none of these ideas are actually related. She tangles them in into this one perspective that dominates her world. So now as, as we come towards the end of this episode, after having this discussion, well, primarily about racism and, and how racism is being discussed as the end-all be-all and how that shapes the world that we live in, how that shapes our conversations, I've realized that more and more the end result is that no one is willing to speak up because there are so many disincentives to speaking up. Most individuals feel like the best thing to do is to remain silent. And that's something that I know that I've felt on numerous occasions and something that I'm actively trying to combat by having this podcast, by saying the things that I think, even though there may be a time that, I, that I'm missing information, that I don't have the full facts and I need to be corrected. And I understand that that, that may happen at times and that's a, a risk that I need to take in order to grow intellectually and as a person. And I do that through communicating, through sharing my ideas and through being open to feedback, which is why I'm extending the invitation. Once again, if you disagree with something we said, if you were triggered, if you think we were wrong, feel free to reach out to us and we can have a private discussion and talk about it. We'd be happy to, because it's only through communication. It's only through pushback and discussion that our ideas can be challenged and we can actually grow better. And that's something that we're always striving to do is we want to find the truth. We want to find the right answers. It's only those who who never question themselves 
who end up in the wrong, and that's not where we'd like to be. And with that, thank you for listening to this episode. This has been episode 34 of the Rethinking Politics podcast. Check us out on Facebook and Twitter. Our website is rethinkingpolitics.podbean.com and you can email us at rethinkingpoliticspodcast at gmail.com. And with that, thank you for listening and we'll see you next week.